Hello, welcome to the Leading for Resilience podcast, where we ask senior decision makers to share their thinking on what kind of leadership builds resilience in this time of permacrisis. I'm Shazre Cumberhill, Director for Strategy and Impact at Resilience First. And I'm Peter Willis, based in Cape Town, a senior associate of Resilience First and the founder of Conversations That Count. Today, we're joined by Rachel Skither, Executive Director, Responsible Business and Government Relations at Engineering Consultancy, WSP UK. Rachel is also past president of the Institution of Civil Engineers. Rachel, welcome. Hi, Shazray. Lovely to be here. Hi, Rachel. Great to have you here. I want to tell our listeners that you and I have done this interviewing thing before uh, quite extensively. Back in 2021, in the six months running up to COP26 in Glasgow, while you were still president of the Institution of Civil Engineers, you and I had a half-hour conversation online every fortnight, really thinking through the challenges you were meeting as you were facing up to the climate crisis, kind of on behalf of your profession. And... Uh, my sense at that time was that you felt an incredible responsibility to use the lofty podium you had as president to try and shape a new discourse within the profession around its possibility for really contributing to putting humanity on a, a, a different track for the future. And you were doing this notably as not only the youngest ever president of the institution, but also only the second woman to hold that post. And I really admired the way you were doing that in all kinds of ways. And so, if I may, I'd like to begin by asking you, could you pick out, say, three innate qualities in yourself or important things that happened in your past that may have contributed to the kind of person you are now as a leader with this huge passion for change and, and the, the, the willingness to go against the grain of an age-old institution and so on? Three, three things. Um, I think it's, first of all, a piece around what happens to have been my kind of, I suppose, this slightly academic route that got me into a transport career completely by accident. So, so I, um, I did a geography degree which included elements of sustainability and parts to do with resilience as it existed, you know, 25 plus years ago now. So I actually studied some of these sorts of topics. I understood, you know, I remember learning about frontland definitions of sustainability. I remember hearing about, um, you know, the Rio Earth Summit and so on, because all of that had happened just before I was sort of in that academic system. But then I fell into a career in transport planning originally, totally by accident. And didn't necessarily see that these things could connect together. But I think probably the first thing that I feel has happened over the intervening 25 years is those two things have absolutely come back together again in terms of how one applies to the other and vice versa. Because I found myself in a, in a professional world where some of the topics I'd been learning about, just that they were there, but they were not mainstream. And there was no emphasis on trying to bring them mainstream, whereas all of a sudden now we're in a very different place. I guess the, the second piece, I mean, from a from a kind of a transport background point of view, I got very interested some years ago now in terms of the change perspective, the technological change, the excitement in terms of connectivity and automation, electrification, that kind of thing. And of course, at that point, pieces around the climate agenda start to come into play as well. And, and increasingly over that same time, I've understood that transport related 
emissions that are out there in the world are now very often the number one domestic source of carbon emissions in the world. And so therefore you can't be a transport professional unless you also start to understand some of these things. The third one, third point, I guess, very briefly is you mentioned there that my sort of um, enjoyment, I suppose, of just being a little bit different. I've always been a bit like that in a very personal sense. I enjoy constructively challenging things. I like finding the edges of problems. I like finding the, the ways that things join together in, in perhaps ways that others don't necessarily see. And, and I enjoy exploring that. And I enjoy finding ways to bring others with me in terms of understanding that some of those new joins might actually be particularly important. So I guess somewhere in all of that is a fairly decent explanation of what makes me tick. And tick you do, Rachel. Now, I want to take you back to those conversations we had two years ago. And around about the middle of them, you started to get really interested in the way climate change brings with it such a degree of uncertainty. And, and that this was, in your view, really starting to affect the thinking landscape of your colleagues in the engineering profession. Because as I think you put it then, having to integrate escalating degrees of uncertainty really cuts against the grain of everything that engineers are trained to be good at, like being precise, like, like getting the right answer and so on. And I actually want to quote something you said. You said, this is probably the leadership challenge of the future, certainly in our technical spaces, harnessing the power of vulnerability, of not knowing all the answers. Perhaps that's quite a new style of leadership, because actually we aren't masters or mistresses of our own destiny or of the planets. And I wondered how your thinking has evolved and what are you noticing in your profession around this issue of uncertainty? So I think as an issue, this point around uncertainty sitting rather uncomfortably with technical professions where actually exactly as you've just said, people are sort of trained to, to want to get towards, if you like, the right answer or a correct answer, that kind of thing. It is a really challenging place to find yourself where actually admitting that you don't know exactly how something might play out or you're not sure which of these options might now be considered to be a better one because actually you're bringing in new dimensions to your thinking. So, for example, you're not just looking at other very important factors like the safety of some element of infrastructure you want to introduce or, or the, the cost of it or how long it might take to create it and all that kind of stuff. All these things are obviously still important. But you introduce a climate dimension, whether you're talking about the resilience piece in terms of how it might improve a whole system and the way it works, or the resilience of the asset itself, or you introduce a decarbonisation angle in terms of well, what is the impact of what it is we plan to do, not just in terms of building it, but over its many, many decades of operation and use over the life of whatever it is you're trying to create. These are areas where even now, and with the benefit of a few years having passed, Peter, since we first spoke, we still don't know a lot of these answers and we're, and we're still having to find our way towards understanding what better decisions actually look like. From an engineering standpoint, do I really need to take this into account in terms of what I do? I think that element of uncertainty actually has gone away. I think there is a much more clear understanding across the engineering and in particular, the I guess, the civil engineering and infrastructure communities that I know well, where suddenly this is something that people are understanding is not optional. This is now essential in terms of what we need to do. Now, what you then do with that in terms of moving that closer to the world of engineering expertise and, and not necessarily precision in terms of answers, but just wanting to be confident that we are actually coming up with optimised answers or picking the right solutions from a, from a whole bundle of potential options and so on. There is still a very long way to go and a lot of the data is still not there, but I think we're beginning to see what we need to do next. 
And actually, it's funny reflecting on it, actually, just with the benefit of a couple of years of time having passed. That's probably quite a positive jump, actually, in terms of going forward, which is which is quite nice, really. But I wouldn't say we're finished on that uncertainty journey yet by any means. I think there is a huge amount to do. Skill building, understanding the the pace we need to go at, as well as a bit, having an understanding of the direction we need to go. All of those sort of pieces now, I think, are really beginning to come into the frame. I'd like to dive into that a little bit deeper, Rachel. And I think it's it's great that at least within the infrastructure space now, compared to where things were, say, five or 10 years ago, there is this recognition that the change is coming. There's inevitable impacts locked into the system that we need to prepare for. And it doesn't matter how successful we are on the mitigation side of things. There are certain impacts that are coming regardless. Where do you think the hesitation then comes from? Where do you think the uncertainty then comes from now? So what are the challenges? Once we've accepted that change is coming, what are then the challenges that are slowing down progress on the resilience side? So specifically on that defensive side, if you like, the resilience side, the adaptation side and so on, I think there is a growing recognition and actually this is literally unfolding right now in in the UK context. There is a growing understanding that we need to take stock across our infrastructure systems and across all of the various assets that form part of those systems. We need to get a much more clear understanding of actually how well they're working at the moment and be honest with ourselves about that, which is which is difficult to do because very often the data isn't necessarily there. We haven't really reviewed some of these, I don't know, transport or water or energy systems, that kind of thing in quite that way before. And I suppose really what we need to recognise, and I think this is a work in progress and definitely not something that's yet finished in either a political or a technical sense at the moment, we need to understand where the weak points are likely to be from a climate resilience point of view in the context of the various places that we're we're talking about, you know, not just around here, but indeed in the same way around the world, because that's the only way we're going to get a handle on what we need to do about it in terms of changing all of those infrastructure systems to become more resilient. What I'm noticing shifting at the moment in terms of that sort of more strategic thinking is actually it's the systems piece that is going to let us down here because we don't necessarily understand quite how some of these systems really work in a resilient sense at the moment and where those weak points are. But it's also the interaction between the systems and the need to understand that the weak point might not actually be in your system. It might be in somebody else's system, which is which is really, really difficult, I think, to to get across in a world where very often these infrastructure systems and assets are in different ownership with different funding cycles, with different ways of making those changes and so on. There are some terrifying, I guess, but really good case studies from around the world at the moment where to some extent it's about obviously that the physical resilience of the infrastructure systems where they exist in the same geography. So for, I don't know, for example, if, if something floods, it's not just you know one thing that goes wrong, it can be multiple things that go wrong. But there's also, I think, increasingly a digital crossover point in this space where actually the the reliance on digital connectivity means that if that piece goes wrong, then actually your crisis points can get worse very, very quickly because everybody's actually reliant on the same data flows and the ability to, you know, to to communicate um, within and between the different systems to actually get things sorted out. And I don't think at the moment we are prepared around here as we should be for that type of thinking. So so it feels like there's a really kind of practical, pragmatic element here in terms of just the basic assets. What have we got? What condition are they in? 
what are we going to do about fixing up some of the things that clearly need to be sorted out? But there's also that much more strategic overlay about understanding how all these different things interact and actually what that kind of cascade effect might actually be as and when things do go wrong. What kind of demands do you think that then puts on leaders and decision makers for who are kind of thinking about these things now? How do you think those demands are changing of leadership? Speaking very honestly, I genuinely think that one of the biggest challenges we have right now in terms of leadership in this space is that the climate-led skills, the climate-led thinking, the climate-led mindset that is actually required in order to engage with any of these huge problems that we're talking about here isn't something that most people in those sorts of leadership positions are very familiar with. It's not something that necessarily they have all encountered in terms of their educational path to this point. It's not necessarily something they've encountered in terms of their professional path through whatever roles they've held since emerging into the into the world of work. And I actually think that is a really, it's a challenging place to find yourself, I suppose, if you are a leader without that knowledge. Where do you, where do you find out what you need to know? Because you can't be seen to be asking what could be really, really silly questions. <laughs> In a forum where you expect to know, I, I genuinely do think we have an opportunity, I suppose, to, to try to be as helpful as possible to help those who otherwise would find this extremely challenging to kind of dive into, to get towards that understanding as quickly as possible, I would suggest. I think we shouldn't underestimate how hard it is. I mean, it, we only, you can turn it around the other way, can't you? You know, we all know what we know, but if you want to dive into somebody else's world, it's not easy. <laughs> And it, and it takes a certain kind of, I suppose it's again, it's that sort of not being afraid of not knowing piece, isn't it? Being slightly open to that change and that learning that, that's key, but far easier to stick in your comfort zone. Far easier. Okay. I want to take you back, if I may, to your very interesting distinction between the resilience of a particular infrastructure asset and then the much more complex and, in your words, scary systems risk particularly when there's heavy dependence on, you know, widely deployed electronic systems, because if they go down, it's really hard to map, let alone mitigate for the impact that that has on the underlying systems and assets. And as you were describing these two levels, you know, the infrastructure assets and the systems they depend on, I wondered, isn't there a third element of this resilience challenge, if you like, which is, if, for example, we imagine a major transport infrastructure system gets hit badly by some extreme weather event, then you've got a situation where the people who are in responsible roles on the ground on that day are going to have a disproportionate influence on how the crisis turns out, whether infrastructure functions or not, whether people's lives are saved. So I guess I'm going back to Shazray's question about the implications for leaders. And it's, it's not just about designing better, more resilient stuff. It's actually how good are you and your team in a crisis? I'm just wondering whether there is a conversation about this within your profession, you know, around operational resilience at the human and leadership level. I think that is absolutely valid. Having the system itself, you know, either available or not available to you does not then necessarily determine what the outcome is, does it? It's, it's actually how, as you say, how you are able to behave, how quickly I suppose you can understand the scale of what it is you're dealing with and the, the exact nature of what it is you're actually dealing with. And then, you know, what decisions actually get made as a result of it. As you were asking that sort of question there, my mind 
was turning very much to the experience and the learnings um, to some extent through COVID, actually. The different resilience, and in that case, I guess, health resilience, their decisions made in different places around the world, um, sort of for better or worse in some cases, and what the outcomes actually were in terms of you know, what is it that people decided to do as a result of seeing that this problem was coming kind of thing. It's actually a very, very similar set of conditions, isn't it, really? I suppose the the difference when it comes to infrastructure systems is it's very much just around it's around getting an understanding of the the boundaries i guess of you know what has actually gone wrong where are the things that we can influence where are the things we can't what what is it we're actually going to do next and again that that piece around the interaction between different systems and the extent to which different things might go right or wrong depending on what else you do it's hideously complicated isn't it I'm not sure that you could ever sort of offer guidance or training in to cover absolutely every single eventuality. But I do think we've all had a pretty healthy reminder, actually, through that sort of 18 or so months of, of COVID around the need to have some of these resilience type plans in place. And at least to take some of the kind of first principles thinking out of it in, in that live situation when you're actually dealing with different things. To me, that offers an opportunity to hold on to that thought and not to lose it too quickly, I guess. My hunch is it's not going to be a plan so much as training in how to move onto that plane of rapidly connecting with the different parts of the system that are relevant and, and so on, which you can't plan for, but you can learn the, the fundamental principles of I think there's absolutely a, a sort of a behavioral piece, you know, a human behavioral piece in all of this, which is one element of this. From an infrastructure and engineering systems point of view, the other piece that immediately comes through really, really strongly in terms of this part of the thinking is that as and when something does happen, the importance of having data that is actually meaningful to tell you what's really going on. And I think that's an area in terms of resilience overall, where actually time spent thinking sooner rather than later around actually what is it we'd really need to know. Because very often we measure the things that are easy to measure. We don't measure the things that are valuable to measure, if you see what I mean. And we probably don't invest as we should in some of those or in gathering some of those data points that would actually genuinely almost always be valuable in that crisis moment and so on. It's, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? Is, you know, what would we ideally want to know and how confident are we that we would know those things? And it's easy to say with 2020 hindsight, it's, <laughs> it's very difficult in the run up. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful question. What would we, you know, what would we most need to know and have access to in terms of information and data in a, a range of sort of imaginable crises around this system of infrastructure that I work in? And sometimes you can see that you'd almost always need some of the same things. Yes, yes, I think so. And then the question becomes, well, how uh, reliable yeah. is that information? How, you know, are we able to take the right data and turn it into valuable information quickly or not? And if, if not, then that would appear to be a, you know, a pretty useful line of inquiry, should we say? Well, we do. Of, yeah, I was going to say we do often hear that when you're dealing with climate, it's like looking in the rearview mirror while trying to drive forward. How do we meet that challenge, particularly in your field? And then second part to my question I think one of the hesitations or one of the roadblocks is often that different companies, different organizations are responsible for the data for each of their own kind of networks, right? Particularly in infrastructure. 
and there's a hesitation on sharing that data. How do we meet some of these challenges to get to that point where we feel we can be prepared and have the data that we need when disaster strikes inevitably? Any, there's a very straightforward answer to that question. <laughs> Come on, Rachel, you can solve it for us. I know you've got the answer. So I think both pieces of what you just said there, that how do we make sure we get hold of the right data to be able to inform those decisions that need to be made in the event of, of whatever the, the crisis might be, but also how do we tackle those issues of data ownership and collaboration and collective action and recognising that others have other pieces of the same sort of jigsaw in that moment where you need that information to come through. If we can somehow leverage that piece around, you know, th- this is not optional. This isn't about a sort of a, a data project that would be really interesting if we could get this all sorted out. It becomes, this is actually an element that's utterly essential in terms of taking responsible climate action. And in fact, that is what should drive the timeframes around all of this now, because there isn't any time to waste. And I, I mentioned um, so the direction of travel being a bit better sorted out now than it was maybe two, three years ago. I think it's one thing to say that we understand what direction we need to go in, in terms of all these changes now. The other point that has to drop in on that, though, is the pace of change and the recognition that we are not in control of the timescale here. And so actually, if we take too long to come up with this beautiful and terribly interesting solution, actually, it may come too late. And and I think the more people who are out there who are beginning to understand that across the different spaces, the the easier it should become to encourage people of the need to do this, so, you know, take these different steps now. You know, Rachel, you reminded me that one of the first conversations we had, I think, in 2021, uh, you were talking about speed in relation to taking climate action. And you were making the point that maybe it's better to, to make mistakes and get it wrong, but be fast about getting it wrong and then repairing it and trying something different and so on than it is to be overly methodical, perfectionist, and a lot slower and so on. And all of this in the context of having to talk, which you were doing a lot with engineers from around the world, for whom the idea of going fast and breaking things isn't exactly what they've built their careers on. And I also just want to reflect on the difficulty which which Shazra is raising. Um, It's so interesting that in an emergency, like in a war, we can see it in Ukraine now, You do everything to share information internally with your friends, your allies, and so on, in order to come rapidly up with quick answers. But the capitalist system that we've been comfortably embedded in for the last 50, 100 years has it all differently. Your IP is part of your assets, and you don't share it with your competitors or people who might become your competitors. So what I'm wondering is, should we not perhaps logically... (laughs) be declaring an emergency, because then these rules and protocols around sharing data change almost automatically. What do you think? It's so interesting, isn't it? I think it's all to do with where your perception of threat is, isn't it? If you perceive there is a direct and imminent threat to your, you know, to you and your your operations, whatever it might be, your business, et cetera, et cetera, it is at that point in your interest, isn't it, to be collaborative and <laughs> to join in with others who perceive a similar threat. So you become part of the us at that point rather than us and them. Whereas exactly as you say, inside the typical sort of slightly less threatened, <laughs> less pressured behaviours, of course, the competition comes through, doesn't it? Because you perceive that you can, you can, you can win in terms of whatever it is you're, you're trying to do. I mean, on, on the point around, you know, shouldn't we declare an emergency? I mean, it, it sort of feels like we've done that. 
but somehow it's not generating the right behaviours. I, I don't... Somehow, there is something about the nature of the climate crisis, isn't there? Because it is, to some extent, this is a, a 50, 60, 70 year sort of point of crisis that's been building. This is not a sort of a last week kind of a thing. It's a bit like, what's that analogy around? It's boiling frogs, isn't it? You know, people don't, you just don't notice a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And somehow, psychologically, sort of human nature is that we don't want to believe there's really a crisis yet. And at the same time, you know, there is. And I think that puts us all in it. It's a really difficult position. We're all slightly conflicted, aren't we? And it's very, very difficult for those who, who genuinely see see this for what it is, you know, and almost the more you know, the more worried you get and the more frustrated you become with seeing the lack of pace in all of this action and so on. But the only way through that is to help others to see the problem <laughs> equally. You can't tell someone there's an emergency. They have to realise it for themselves. You can't tell someone there's a crisis. They have to agree with you there's a crisis. <laughs> Same with COVID. I mean, you know, yeah, well, that's right. And, and yes, and, and, and I don't know, what does that take us to as a conclusion? Have we actually got to wait to the point where we genuinely have this utter disaster on everybody's doorstep before somebody says, oh, actually, do you know what? Maybe it's time. But then the, the cost, the risk attached to action then is going to be so much greater than if we had just taken action now. There, there is some interesting thinking in, in the UK on that at the moment. Our Climate Change Committee has recently been pretty active in terms of putting out various updates and so on. And, and in there, there is a definite undertone of it will be cheaper and less risky to get a grip on this now. This is now, you know, it's an invest to save plan now in a, in a financial sense, as well as a climate and humanity sense, I suppose. What's often referred to as the resilience dividend, but also it's just true. Prevention is better than the cure. And it's going to cost us a lot less to try and tackle the problem at the design and the investment stage than try to fix it once the thing's been built and then broken. I've got one last question for you, Rachel. If, if I put myself in the shoes of a young, bright civil engineer confronting the enormous urgency and difficulty and complexity of the climate crisis, um, I could imagine getting quite motivated by the incredible scope for invention and innovation and really changing the way things are done. And uh, I'm just wondering if that is something that's being encouraged by your profession. It definitely is. I mean, I think there is always going to be a blend of, the, if you like, the carrots and the sticks, the, the, the incentives and, and the mandates and so on. I think we have to accept that what we need to get towards is a better blend of thinking that helps us to go forward faster. There are all sorts of really interesting pockets of better practice in terms of, I suppose, climate-led thinking, in, certainly in the civil engineering space, but also in other wider engineering spaces as well. There's all kinds of innovation coming through. There's all kinds of new ways of thinking. But I actually think that the value that we could get from a sort of a groundswell shift across all the pieces of just mainstream, relatively sort of mundane, everyday practice could just be enormous if we could find a way for everybody doing all these different little pieces to actually just, just change what they do just by a little bit rather than needing 
I mean, obviously, we, you know, of course we want the breakthrough moments, but we mustn't just rely on 10 breakthroughs and then not do anything else differently. I, I genuinely think that the benefit on offer from that sort of little bit everywhere type change in the space, certainly that I work in, really could be far, far greater, I think, than we realise. Because the minute you take something mainstream, it becomes normal practice. It becomes business as usual. It means people are just thinking about it without even thinking about it, which would be a fantastic place to get to. Sadly, I don't think we're quite there yet, but we're <laughs> inching our way a little bit closer, I suppose, as we as we go along. Is that the 10p plastic bag equivalent that we need for the sector? Do you know, that's a really nice way of putting it. Yeah, it's something like that where you think it shouldn't make that much of a difference, but guess what? It really does, doesn't it? Yes, yes. And sometimes it's not the really complicated, super clever breakthroughs that that necessarily generate the thin layer change that comes through absolutely everywhere. It would actually be quite interesting to 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 document what in the last 10 years, 10, 15 years in the civil engineering space would count as some of those things that have now become completely normal and are relatively low key, but have actually um, just changed the way they, but not necessarily only in carbon uh, related to carbon, but to show that this is a, a profession that does change it's normal. So its resistance to doing more change is actually unfounded because you do it all the time. Yes. If you ask people to make a massive change overnight, that's difficult. But I think, yes, that sort of incremental, yes, those, there are moments you can grab where suddenly people do. It's, a lot of it's about conscious thought. And Peter, I'm sure we must have had bits of this conversation as well a couple of years ago, but the world of infrastructure and engineering is full of people who are in the roles they're in because they genuinely want to and believe that they are helping people and communities around the world to have a better quality of life. And actually, the biggest trick we could play here is to make sure that all those same people understand that climate action towards better resilience, towards you know faster decarbonisation, etc., is probably one of the biggest things they could do to help with that. Because that puts it front and centre of, ah, I am helping people to have a better quality of life both now and in future and so on. That is absolutely the motivating force behind that sort of engineering mindset. Yes, they love having the, the new solutions and the clever innovations, all the rest of it, of course. But the reason they enjoy that is because of the difference it makes to others out there, not just to, you know for their own sort of <laughs> personal platform and that kind of thing. Well, I was going to ask you, if you looking ahead, what's the one thing that gives you most cause for hope? If I had to pick on something that genuinely gives me hope, I would immediately point out the fact that in the last, say, two years, there has been a massive shift in terms of civil engineering infrastructure awareness of this climate issue. Awareness is the first step. And then, you know, if you're not aware, you can't do anything about it. So I do think that this climate thinking, resilience thinking, decarbonisation thinking, all these things are so intertwined, aren't they? It is now moving towards being much more mainstream. And that does give me a lot of hope because we need everybody's brains on this, not just a few people to be thinking about it. So that actually is a cause for massive celebration, actually. And what a stark contrast to when you probably first started in your career. Yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it's now it's now a visible thing that you can't go to an industry conference without hearing about it. You you certainly wouldn't expect to walk around 
you know, an engineering design office without hearing people at least, you know, discussing and debating some of these things. The trick is now to get it out there and into action a lot faster, isn't it? And that's the challenge for us all. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today and to hear all of your insights and experience in this industry that's, I'd say, almost at the forefront of this emergency and will be quite impacted in the future years. So thank you. And uh, we will see you next time. Thanks so much, Rachel. That was that was wonderful. Brilliant. Thank you. And thank you for listening. This is one of a series of conversations we'll be having on this topic. So please subscribe below and you'll be notified when our next interview is ready in a few days time. See you then. Bye.